The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, if you are uh, with the 3s and 4s class, thank you for worshiping with us. You're dismissed to your class. If you don't have a copy of God's Word... Let me invite you to raise your hand, and uh, one of our church members will come down the aisle, and they'll bring you an extra copy. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, uh, get used to me saying, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open to 1 Corinthians, because today is the beginning of a new journey through a book of the Bible, and uh, this will take us approximately a year, give or take a couple Sundays. 1 Corinthians uh, is a book that uh, the Lord has inspired by His Spirit and preserved for us for such a moment as this in the life of our church. What we do as a church is we take books of the Bible and we work through them uh, sentence by sentence, word by word, paragraph by paragraph, uh, from beginning to end so that uh, we're not skipping things, so that what leads this church is not my agenda, but the agenda of the Lord, uh, so that we come to texts that are difficult, and we must deal with them. And in that process, I believe what we see as a church, what we have seen in the church over the last eight years of this church, is that God literally guides us by his sovereignty and leads us to particular texts for particular times that uh, he might use them in the life of our church, in the life, uh, in each individual's lives. And so, so God is very much sovereign. He's very much in control over the way in which we even work through texts of Scripture. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 is where we'll begin this morning. The introductory greeting to Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. Now, even before I read it, uh, let me just say this. Introductory greetings um, are some of the most overlooked sentences in your Bible. You sort of read them sort of quickly as if it's just uh, an announcement of who's writing and who, who he's writing to. But they're often some of the most significant sentences. Because in the greeting, uh, not only do we discover who the author is, who the recipients are. What we discover in the greetings are clues to the primary message that we will see over and over again throughout the letter. So not all of Paul's letters uh, begin with the exact same greeting. Every greeting has these nuances that sort of set you up for what he's about to do. So, for example, in the book of Romans, his greeting is the largest greeting out of any other book. It's, it's this, like, comprehensive, like, doctrinal statement at the beginning that takes you through the gospel. Well, that's exactly what Romans is. It's his most systematic, large sort of walking through the entire story of what Christians believe. Or take, for example, Peter's letter to the, the people in First Peter, the exiles that he's writing to. He refers to them as the elect exiles. From the very beginning, he calls them the chosen by God, but rejected by men. And then what he goes on to that letter is to highlight that reality, 
that every Christian uh, in that particular time was being rejected by men with, with a massive amount of persecution, but he's reminding them, but you're chosen by God. You have the affirmation of the most important being in the universe. And so, so greetings sort of tip us off to what's to coming. So as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we ease into it, we want to give careful attention to introductory words. So let's, so let's read um, verses 1 through 3 together. And then we'll pray for understanding. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord's and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray together. Father, um, help us. Help us to see true things in this 2,000-year-old document that you have preserved for us Christians in 21st century St. Rose to read and know you a little bit more and know your purposes and plans for your people a little bit more. I pray, God, that you would give me an undistracted mind. Give all of us an undistracted mind. Help us to listen as if you are a God who speaks. Help us to listen believing that you're a God who speaks to us individually, to us corporately by the power of your word. Father, we pray, speak by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, the first word introduces us to the author. Paul is a real historical person. I think it's important that when we approach a new book of the Bible to pause and to remind ourselves that what we do this morning is not tell fairy tales. We're not here to read a fable or to read some sort of oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation and changed little bit at a time. What we read is the first name of a person who wrote a document of which there are thousands of manuscripts that have meticulously been kept and copied and preserved for us to read in this moment. Paul was a real historical person who wrote a letter that is now 2,000 years old. Paul is one of the most significant figures, most influential figures in history. Paul of Tarsus. He lived in a real place. He was a Jew. He was trained in the words of the Old Testament in a religious sect called the Pharisees. He was an expert in the Old Testament. He was also trained as a Roman citizen. He was trained in Greek. He was trained in rhetoric. He was trained in much of the wisdom of the world. He was zealous for his Jewish traditions, and he was directly opposed to another historical figure named Jesus. 
Jesus showed up in real time and space making big claims, claiming to be God, claiming to be the fulfillment of the scriptures that had been written for thousands of years prior to his arrival, and accompanying him were massive, undeniable, supernatural miracles of which thousands of people saw and enjoyed the blessings from. Jesus claimed these things. Paul did not believe these things. You see, Paul believed that Jesus was an imposter, a heretic, a false prophet. He did not come the way that Paul expected the Savior to come from all of Paul's studies. This Christian movement for Paul was something to be eradicated, not propagated. Paul was there in the real historical moment, holding the cloaks of the men who put to death the first Christian martyr by way of stoning. And in a real historical moment, recorded for us in Acts chapter 9, Paul of Tarsus the Jew and Roman citizen left the city of Jerusalem with an agenda. He left for Damascus with the plan of hunting down and imprisoning or killing this imposter movement called Christianity. He intended to arrive to seek and destroy anyone who believed that Jesus really got out of the grave. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 tells us this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, I would get thrown off by the name Saul. That's just his Jewish name. Paul is his Greek name. Paul leaves Jerusalem, planning to kill Christians, Paul arrives in Damascus, a Christian. And even the Christians struggled to believe that such a conversion took place. <laughs> and it'd be like, like Hitler showing up into a town full of Jews and saying, no, 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 I believe now in the God of the Jews. It would take a little while for the people in the town to accept that. How did this happen? How could a man wanting to murder Christians when he left Jerusalem, by the time he arrives to Damascus, now suddenly be an apostle of Christ Jesus, a sent one of Jesus Christ? He gained no riches because of this decision, no comfort, no ease, no honor. This was not a step up in the career path. Paul would then go on to live a life of being persecuted, being beaten, being imprisoned, and eventually executed for his faith. Why in the world did this happen historically? Why are we talking about this? Well, the only sensible historical answer is the answer that Paul gives us, that Paul met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. That a sovereign God intervened in this particular man's life and saved him and opened his eyes to eternal truth he was refusing to believe. God gave him saving faith in Jesus as he's on his way to 
to imprison Jesus' followers. And Paul summarizes his salvation story in this greeting with just one simple phrase. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Truth number one that we can see just from the author of this text is this, God calls sinners to himself and to his mission. The God who spoke the universe into being calls this man out of unbelief, out of blindness, into faith, and into the ministry of apostleship. That is the ministry of now representing Jesus to a lost and dying world. This word called, in the very first sentence of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1, becomes an important descriptor for the kind of work that God does, not just in Paul's life, but for the kind of work that God does in any person who is a Christian. Not only is Paul called by the will of God, but if you're a Christian person here this morning, you too have been called effectually and powerfully by the God of the universe out of death, out of darkness, out of sin, out of the purposeless pursuit of your own fading glory. The same word repeats over and over again throughout it. Let me show it to you. Uh, Verse 2, Paul just calls himself the one who's called by the will of God. Now he directs himself, his words to the church, to the church of God that's in the Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Again, in verse 22 of chapter 1, Jews demand signs, Greek seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. In other words, this message we're preaching about Jesus is getting rejected all over the place, but there's one kind of difference that happens. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 26, and just in case you get proud of this fact that God has miraculously opened your eyes and saved your soul. Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. Paul begins the letter with a public acknowledgement that the primary mover and shaker in the missional movement in Corinth is not Paul. He's the one who planted the church in Corinth. He's the one who first shared the good news of Jesus with them. He's the one who labored long and hard for a year and a half in a very difficult city. He's an apostle, an official representative of Jesus. But let's get this clear from sentence one. It was only through the powerful call of the will of a sovereign God. God had a plan that God was accomplishing, and Paul was thankful to be a part of it. Not only to salvation, but to a life of kingdom-expanding service. And from the beginning of this book, this, this sentence called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, it is a miracle sentence. And it tells us something about God from day one. Paul begins with this acknowledgement to defer the glory to the rightful place. 
and to bring encouragement to the Corinthians who certainly were people who were called out of some dark sin as well. Paul's sinful past sets him up perfectly to fulfill his ministry, not just in general, but in Corinth particularly. Having looked at the author, uh, let me pause before we move to the recipients, and let me just say off the cuff here, not in my manuscript, how encouraging it is to me that it's not about me. If you don't have a firm grounding, a faith in the will of God being the thing in which we trust for our entire lives, you will have a hard time surviving the Christian life in a broken world. Paul endured incredible hardships because he was following Jesus. And what grounded him in the midst of incredible hardships is that the God of the universe reached down and plucked him out of his hell-bound race and put him exactly where he wanted him for the glory of Christ. If, you don't, if you're not confident in that, you will struggle when the storms of life comes. God saved Paul and sent him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, the word Corinth might not strike us the same way it would have struck the original readers of the Scripture. Corinth had a reputation. Not a reputation of virtue, but a reputation for its vices. And so let me just try to paint the picture for you of the city in which Paul landed to try to share the message of Jesus. And I'll, and I'll use uh, some different scholars' voices just trying to put into words what this city was like. So first off, Corinth was known for its wealth. So listen to Craig Blomberg as he writes. In Paul's day, it was probably the wealthiest city in Greece, a major multicultural urban center. Every two years, Corinth played hosts in its massive stadium to the Isthmian Games, a competition which was second only to the Olympics in prominence. A large theater seating 18,000 and a concert hall that would hold 3,000, which regularly brought drama and music, musical entertainment of many forms. I was reading one commentary that suggested that this might have been the first place where gladiator games were held, where people would come to be entertained by men killing each other. Corinth was known for their arrogance and their divisiveness because of their wealth, because of their power as a city. Ben Witherington writes this, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. The Corinthian people lived with an honor-shame cultural orientation where public recognition was more often important than facts and where the worst thing that could happen was one's reputation be publicly tarnished. In such a culture, a person's sense of worth is based on the recognition of others, one's accomplishments, hence the self-promoting of public inscriptions. People would take their money and they would build a statue or a fountain or a park, or an outdoor gym, and they would put in big letters their names, and, and everyone was comp 
competing for whom could have the most glory and most recognition in the city. And there's one quote, and we don't have time to read it all, but uh, Plutarch is talking about Corinth in 80 BC, and uh, you, you would think he's ta- he just read through a social media feed. As he's describing the interactions, he, he describes argumentations where all anybody wants is to destroy the other person, not to learn anything. Like, well, sounds familiar. Corinth is known for sexualized idolatry. Gordon Fee writes, as often as it happens in such centers, vice and religion, they come together, they flourish side by side. Old Corinth had gained such a reputation for sexual vice that Astrophanes coined the verb Corinthiazo to mean to commit fornication. So the ancient world recognized this place for its sexual immorality in such a way that to Corinth meant to be sexually immoral. It would be like someone saying, yeah, I knew or leaned last night, and everyone know what you were talking about, which is not too far off from the truth. <laughs> High on the hill in the Corinth was a temple where cult prostitutes would come down into the city for sexual worship of false gods. Gordon Fee summarizes the feel of Corinth in this way. He says all of this evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. That's the city Paul lands into, and there's not a single Christian person there (laughs) with the aim of convincing them there's a better way. Acts chapter 18, verse 5 Describes what's happening in Paul's early days of ministry in Corinth. Acts 18 verse 5 says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul is occupied with the word. He's testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. Paul Paul gives up on reaching the Jews in the city. He transitions to preaching to the Gentiles in the city. He sees some fruit, but there's obviously Obviously, a lot of opposition going on, so much opposition that he's considering moving on to the next place. So much opposition in this city, so much difficult in this city, that he's like, you know what, maybe a church isn't really going to happen here, maybe, maybe I need to move on to the next area, and God actually steps in and intervenes and speaks out of heaven to him to get him to stay. Acts chapter 18, verse 8, he sees a little bit of fruit, but then look at what God has to, to say to him in verse 9. The Lord says to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. And listen to what God says. For I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. In fact, Sosthenes, who gets mentioned in verse 1, is likely one of those people whom were God's people. Leader in a Jewish synagogue who was abused and beaten for his faith, Acts 18, verse 17, he was seized. The ruler of the synagogue, they beat him in front of the whole tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. God interrupts Paul and says, no, no, no. There's still my people to be saved in this city. Keep ministering. How encouraging to Paul that God says, Paul, it's not about you, brother. And not only is it not about you, it's not about how difficult the place is or how difficult the city is or how difficult the people are. It's about God 
building his church, which leads us to truth number two that we see just from the recipients of this letter. Truth number two, God builds his church in the hardest places. I mean, one of, one of the themes that we'll see in 1 Samuel as we go through community groups over the next couple of weeks is that God, uh, God is a God of great reversals. He is pleased to work in the ways that people think are impossible. The size difference between Goliath and David is a non-factor in the battle. <laughs> There's a reason David gets picked to go to battle with Goliath. Not to say that David's awesome, but to show it doesn't matter. <laughs> God chooses the weak to shame the strong. He's not limited by difficult situations, and he often chooses the hardest places to show his glory over all the evil forces of Satan. A church had been planted in Corinth, and it was God's church. Notice verse 2, to the church of God, not of Paul, not of Brandon, (laughs) the church of God. Be encouraged, Christian. Listen, God tends to work in such a way and in such scenarios where only God can work, where only God can be credited for the work. So Paul stayed in Corinth, not because he liked the Isthmian games, not because he was into the Corinthiazo culture, not because God, not because uh, he loved the scenery, but because God had many in that city who were his people. He was called, compelled, and burdened. Let me just pause right there. Let me just pause right there and ask, have you ever been in a situation where Paul was in, called, compelled, and burdened for a particular people that seemed almost impossible that they might come to know the Lord? Have you ever responded to the compelling of the Holy Spirit to bring good news to a particular people that seemed almost unreachable? Paul was called to this, but you're called to this. 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God that's in Corinth. This letter's not written to another apostle. This is written to a church of people, just a bunch of regulars like you and me. To the church of God that's in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. To those called to be saints together. This letter's written to a church. You know what the word church literally means? Just bare bones what it literally means. To the gathering. The assembly of God. It's a group of people who gather together regularly, who've been called by Jesus, who now get together to call upon the name of Jesus. And now let me just take a little commercial break right here. Gathering is God's idea. It's essential to what it means to be a Christian. We're called out of the world, and one of the marks of our calling is that we gather, we assemble with other people who are also called by God. Gathering with God's church is not a man-made concept. This is not something that I made up. It's God. And the Bible is clear that gathering with other Christians is a matter of Christian obedience. Later, Paul's going to describe the church as a big body of interconnected members. Hands and feet and eyes and noses and mouth that are joined together, working together for the same purpose. You know what is essential for my body to function? That it is together. The ministry of presence is a command of God, not an option. 
So this is the assembly of people marked by gathering together regularly. And now listen to what he describes. Okay, now we're getting into describing the church. This is the fun part. There are two words Paul uses when he describes God's assembly. God's gathering of people. Two words that set up the dominant themes for the rest of the book. The, the first word is the same word repeated in two different forms. Sanctified and saints. So look back at the text with me. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Truth number three. We got four. Truth number three. God's church is called to be a gathering of saints. A gathering of saints. Now, some of y'all might be just saying amen because I didn't say a gathering of falcons. But that's not what this means, right? The word sanctified, the word sanctified here means to consecrate, to make holy, to set something aside for a divine or sacred purpose. The word sanctified here is in the perfect passive form, which means Paul's describing something that God has definitively done for these Christians in the past. When a utensil was sanctified in the temple, right? Let's say a fork. i just make that up. A fork. When it's cleansed and sanctified for the temple, what it's done, it's taken from its usual use, its normal use, and it's dedicated to the use of God. It's cleansed and washed a particular way. Now, this is used in the temple for the worship of God, this item. So you would sanctify an item in that way or consecrate an item or devote an item to a particular thing. And what, God, what Paul is saying is that you, Christian, are called to be sanctified. That is, pulled from your common use and then set apart from the world to be used for God's sacred use. When this sanctifying work happens, it's something that God has done for you as a Christian. And these Corinthians were, as Paul says, this is what you are, Christian. You are sanctified, past tense, completed action in Christ Jesus. Now, what do, you, what, what do we do with the word in here? Now, you, you could just read that super quickly, or you could stop and say, what does it mean to be set apart in Christ Jesus? Wouldn't it make more sense to say set apart for Christ Jesus? Or perhaps sanctified by Christ Jesus? All those sentences would work grammatically, but for Paul, he wants this to work theologically, and he uses the word in, a preposition of position, of location. You've been set apart in something. So in what way are we located in Christ Jesus by the setting apart work of God's grace when we put faith in Jesus? Well, Paul makes clear throughout all of his writings that to be a Christian is to be so immersed in Jesus Christ that everything Jesus earned with his totally sanctified life is yours. If we are consecrated, set apart for something bigger than ourselves, set apart in this particular question, in Jesus Christ, we not only have relationship with Jesus, we're so united with Jesus that we will receive from God the Father all the blessings that are due Jesus alone. See, to be in Christ Jesus, to be so wrapped in his righteousness that when we come before the throne of God, he doesn't see our wickedness. Jesus represents us, paid the penalty for us. He lived the life that was credited to us. His spirits poured into us, Christian by God's grace, through faith in Jesus. You've already been set apart and consecrated for the purpose of God, and you're eternally secure 
in Christ Jesus. This finished past reality is so beautiful that it then begins to translate into your present and ongoing reality. So this brings us to the second form of the word, sanctified. This this has happened to you in this particular context. This is how the verb is structured. And now he uses the word saint, right? So as I said, contrary to popular opinion, saints are not football players, nor are they special people glowing halos around their head. Paul uses the word saint 39 times in the New Testament to refer to all Christians, All Christians everywhere, not special Christians who get designated by the Catholic Church. 39 times in the New Testament, saints are referred to all Christians. And the word in this particular context, it's an adjective. It is a descriptor, which means holy or set apart. You see, what Paul says is that you've been sanctified, but guess what? You're also called to, to, as you've been positionally set apart for Christ, now you actively live in a set-apart way, a holy way. You live as a saint, a set-apart one, a holy one. In a world of sin and darkness, in a city like Corinth, you are set apart and holy and different than any of the other people that you used to have relationships. Saints in this context, it's an adjective, a descriptor of something we increasingly want to reflect. That means that we think differently than the world. The purpose of our life is different. We spend our money differently. We talk differently. We reason and decision make differently. We respond to conflict differently. We suffer differently. We die differently than the rest of the world. God's church is called to be a gathering of people set apart and distinct from the world we live in. Because Christian, if we believe that every person deserves an eternal hell, And there's a real God who made a way of salvation through the person and work of Jesus. We got one life to live and time's ticking every day. Then we use that time differently than the rest of the world. We've got something bigger to live for than our retirement and some nice things. We've been set apart to live lives of holiness for the glory of God, for the good of those whom we love. And why was 1 Corinthians written? The church in Corinth was losing sight of that. As we'll see, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians primarily because of this problem. The church in Corinth was becoming too influenced by the city of Corinth. One commentator writes this, although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them. And emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that would require radical surgery, surgery without killing the patient. That's what 1 Corinthians attempts to do. What we'll see in Corinthians is a church that began to think and act and interact and tolerate the behaviors and thought patterns of the world they were immersed in rather than look differently. They let Corinth's understanding of money into the church, Corinth's understanding of sex into the church, Corinth's understanding of purpose and arrogance and divisiveness and greed into the church. And they did what every one of us in this room is in danger of doing. And I'll just be honest with you, as I study for this, I have no interest in in pastoring a church that embodies the ideals of the society I live in more than the ideals of heaven. 
Christ in every way went against the grain of the culture rather than assimilating with it. And so God's preserved for us this letter for us to study together at St. Rose Community Church, that the members of this church, that we might be real saints, that we might assess ourselves and look at ourselves and be careful because we lit, we're like fish in water. We don't know we're wet because we're so immersed in the world we live in. And Satan has been very good at making it not only that we live in it, but we feed our face with it for three and four hours a day. We feed our face with this for five to ten minutes a day and expect that we'll live set-apart lives. God has preserved this letter for us to be set apart for the purpose of God, and that sounds daunting. That might even sound impossible to you. How can we ever resist and survive the continual onslaught of ideas being forced down our throat every day? There's only one way. We do it together. There's a second word Paul uses here to modify the word saint, which becomes important throughout this entire letter. Verse 2, last pass through, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Truth number four and our final truth for this morning is this, God's church is called to be a gathering of saints together. Yes, God called us to be different than the world around us, but he called us to be different together. Not different alone, not figuring out how to navigate this crazy world all by yourself. One of the things that makes real everyday holiness possible in the Christian life is that God doesn't save individuals, he saves communities of people to live and work and play and strive for holiness together. There's a unity with the gathering of God's people. There's a unity of being. There's a unity of priorities. There's a unity of purpose. There's a unity in the Christian church primarily because there's one Lord that they serve. If you, for me in my life, what I want for my life is that Jesus is the leader over my life. He's chief priority in everything I do, that he governs what I buy, where I live, what career I choose, how I parent, how I resolve conflict. He governs it. And so if you have the same mentality, then we can be culturally very, very different people, but I will have more in common with you as I pursue Jesus than anyone who looks exactly like me. I will have more in common with you than another six-foot-tall, 32-year-old parent of two who plays soccer and loves the Georgia Bulldogs. But if that person doesn't put Jesus as the priority, I barely know that brother. Because the thing that guides our lives are so different. 1 Corinthians will very much address a problem in the Corinthian church of disunity. As they begin to look more and more like Corinth, uh, as the world infiltrates the church, things other than the lordship of Jesus become priority. And it makes impossible for the togetherness that God created. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, uh, later we'll study this, probably next spring. <laughs> 
For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we're baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. See, it's Jesus as Lord. It's the spirit who fills us. It's the hope before us that binds us together as God's people. As Paul writes, what he's envisioning is that a micro-community of just beautiful gospel relationships infiltrates the nastiness of Corinth and draws more and more people to himself. And all these people, because of Christ, because of their calling, verse 3 is an easy thing to write at the beginning of a letter. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace is our forever future because God calls sinners to himself. He builds his church in the hardest place. He calls us to be a gathering of saints, and he calls us to be a gathering of saints together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this book. I thank you for the opportunity to walk through it as your people. Help us, God. Help us, God, to stand firmly in the unwavering will of God, the will of God who calls people to himself and plants churches in the hardest places, who sanctifies, who makes us saints together. God, we cast ourselves on you, knowing that the only way that Paul ever came to saving faith was by your grace. The only way that Corinth Community Church was planted was by your grace. And Father, the only way that we can go forward is by your grace. Father, we pray, uh, help us to worship you now. Help us to examine ourselves, uh, to listen for the ways in which you've called us in our lives. Help us to join together all the more as a church family, Father. Help us to strive for the kind of togetherness that Paul advocates for, Father, in all the easy ways. And we pray, God, that you would help those in this room that are hesitant to go deep in their relationships with one another. Father, help them to see that as a tool of Satan and that your will, your beautiful will, is that we might be called to be saints together with all those in every place. We call upon your name, O Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.